0: Have you ever thought about leaving your job and becoming a full-time passive investor? On today's episode, we talk to Travis Watts. Travis left the oil sector as a W-2 employee, and he has become a limited partner in multiple syndications. Through his journey of being an LP, he got to know himself through self-education and the mistakes he made along the way. Travis discusses why he has chosen to become an LP in his deals and why you should always allocate a small percentage of your capital to other alternative assets. This is how you will be able to grow and gain knowledge as an investor. Tune in for Travis's tips for getting into a deal and the tax savings that can go along with it. Let's just get right down to business. Joe show. This, this is the Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Hello, Travis. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about your investing experience and what assets you are in today.
1: All right, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'll give you kind of the medium background, not the long-winded one. (laughs) I've been trying to condense it over time. So, here's kind of my my quick snapshot background. I got started in 2009 in single-family homes. Bought my first home when I was 20. Uh, House hacked that home, meaning I had a roommate who was effectively paying my mortgage. I was renting it out fully furnished in a college uh, campus environment. And uh, so that was kind of the light bulb of, of passive investing. I knew that this, this passive income thing really had something to it. If I was able to, to pull this off at an early age, what could I do you know, much later in life? So that, that's kind of what got the wheels turning. I ended up making that a full-time buy and hold rental. I did a whole bunch of strategies from fix and flips to vacation rentals to more house hacking. And I'd buy these homes distressed to live in myself, fix them up as fast as I could with the help of anybody who would help me and uh, and contractors, of course. And then, you know, just rent out the the bedrooms for a while. So I did this this kind of very aggressive approach for many years as I worked in the oil field too. So I had a W-2 job. 14 hours a day, 98 hours a week away from home. I was always either out of state or overseas. It was just a, a huge, huge, huge time commitment for me. And as you can probably imagine, it makes it pretty hard to scale a uh, active real estate portfolio uh, when when that's kind of uh, your day to day. So 2015 is where I burned out in the active single family space. And I thought, God, there's got to be another way to approach real estate there there's got to be a a more hands-off approach to all of this that's where I started really like amplifying self-education reading books mentors podcasts, uh, networking all this kind of stuff and I learned about apartment syndications you know private placement investing limited partnerships things where I could participate in a large asset perhaps Uh, you know, a 300 unit apartment building, let's call it. And then I could just be a passive partner in that. And so it it made it very scalable for me, whether I had one investment or a hundred, it was just hands off. And so from 2015 through today, that's all I do as far as investing are passive opportunities, all in the uh, private placement space. I should say most in the uh, private placement space.
0: And at what point did your investments allow you to leave your W-2 job?
1: Yeah, that was a that was a fun moment. I <laughs> So I've always kept a budget since high school. So I always kind of knew like the inflows and the outflows. What I never really sat down to calculate was net worth before. And so I'm sitting there at my oil field job, oil starting to tank. It was uh, yeah, 2014, early 2015, somewhere in this time frame. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm seeing the writing on the wall, right? What's next? Layoffs, what's next? You know, I just, I got to make a change. Uh, I, I just saw it coming. So I sat down, I thought, hey, what if I took all these single family homes, including the house that I lived in, what if I sold all of these just went completely liquid, like a very extreme, bold move. And I paid the taxes and I paid the realtor commissions. And I just got out of all this. What would I have in terms of a net worth? And then I thought, Because, again, I was just learning about syndications and and what to expect in terms of cash flow and things like this. And I thought, okay, what if I took that net amount and put it all into these uh, syndications? What kind of cash flow would I have? And as I ran those numbers, I realized I can leave my job. (laughs) <laughs> if I if I want to and not only did I want to I was probably gonna have to uh, so that's what prompted me to pull the plug and uh, that was that moment that happened in, in 2015 so.
0: and so you, when you jumped from selling all your assets and going you went into more of an LP or a limited partner role in syndications is that correct
1: that's right. Yeah. So about 80% of my investable portfolio, still today, even, is in uh, mostly value add B and C class apartment communities and either limited partnerships or LLC interests, things like that. And then 20% I allocate to kind of experimenting and keeping it fresh. <laughs> you, know, you hear a lot of people say it in different ways. You know, Mark Cuban says 10% Bitcoin. The point is you you play around with a percentage of your portfolio, whether or not, you know, you lose money or make money. So I've done a lot in that 20% uh, category and that kind of keeps it uh, not so boring.
0: <laughs> well, I think also what's good about 20% category is that sometimes the opportunity on the 80% actually runs out or the margin gets thinner over time. And so kind of testing those waters allows you to establish other relationships, other places that could allow you to start shifting 80% over there if things turn, right? Yeah, you
1: bet. Exactly. I, I don't want to be an expert in only one thing and one thing only. And <laughs> when that stops working, I got nothing. So
0: no, I agree. And so you know I I know several people that are actually, you know, in the process of selling their companies or maybe they've already sold in the past and they're looking to place their capital from, you know, money they made when they exited the company sale. And when you go out into the space, there's hundreds and hundreds of opportunities across all different sectors of, you know, private placements that get thrown at you. Yeah. You know, when you start in 2015, you start looking at those avenues. How mm-hmm. did you start filtering all the opportunities that were available to you out there?
1: That's a good point. I actually kind of had the opposite experience at first, which was I felt like there was no deals out there. And because I didn't know anybody in the space, I wasn't on these email lists. I wasn't, you know, just just thrown into this. I was crawling into it, you know, with the tiny little people. (laughs) So the, the first deals that I did were just with local operators. They were local to my area. Uh, but they weren 't actually doing any deals locally; they were doing them in other states and so for some reason i don 't know why to this day, but I felt like that was really important to partner up with somebody who 's you know essentially my neighbor but you know when you look at the odds there 's obviously some key players out there. what are the odds that 's your neighbor you know it 's probably unlikely depending on where you live but uh, for me, that was the case so these folks didn't have much experience or track record, um, threw some money at it, went higher and heavier than I should have on, on the investments you know, that I made. And then after about six to 12 months later, as I continued my education and networking, I realized, oh, crap, <laughs> those, weren't, those weren't the right people to invest with. There's a, like, to your point, there's thousands of opportunities out here, and I didn't even know it. And so, you know, you kind of had to crack the shell that way, so to speak. And so, yeah, about, I don't know, I've done a little over 30 uh, private placement investments, but I think somewhere around five or six is where I was starting to kind of learn that. And, and I, I finally started writing down my criteria, what was important to me, and started focusing more on, on some key players at that point.
0: And so getting into that uh, important criteria, what what do you see as some of the most important factors that you use up front to determine if the best, you know, the syndication is worth being involved in?
1: Yeah, one thing I've learned going to conferences where there's, say, a thousand people in the crowd and doing this over and over nationwide everywhere, what I've learned by networking with folks is, Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a bias. Everybody's, you know, thinks whatever they're doing is the best thing in the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. And if you're really great at whatever it is, you know, self storage or mobile home parks or office retail, whatever, uh, that's great. But, but what's important is to define your own criteria. So what is it that you personally like, enjoy, understand, what makes sense to you, what aligns with your own core values, philosophy, all that kind of stuff, and then, Seek the operators in the space that are doing those types of deals. That's probably the, the, the biggest, most critical thing that I've learned. Because uh, otherwise, it's all noise, right? You go around and this person persuades you, this is the right thing. And this person's in, into crypto. And then this person, you know, and you just, it's so confusing. And, and how would you know what to do, you know? So you got to build a little bit of uh, certainty and, and expertise in, in a niche um, to, to a point.
0: And I always like to say, there's you don't ever see a pro forma that shows you losing money,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right, yeah.
0: So that's what true. what are uh, you know what does it take, or is there any criteria that you know you have to qualify in order to participate in these deals?
1: Yeah, it's a good point. So another, is kind of the the issue that I see with the regulations surrounding the space, you know, in regard to the SEC stuff. So. there's really two common types of offerings. There's a lot more than this, but two two are 506B and 506C. Okay. 506B short handed here means that you can't publicly advertise the deal. Okay. So someone's going to have to find you. You're going to have to find them. You're going to have to establish a relationship. You're going to have to discuss high level what you do. And then 30 day, whatever, you know, down the road, you're going to say, Hey, now I have a deal, whatever. Do you remember me? And uh, the 506 Cs, you can publicly advertise. So those are the deals that you commonly see when you run an internet search. And this was the the problem that I had and that a lot of people have, especially if they're non-accredited investors. All you see pop up is 506 Cs that say accredited investors only, meaning a million net worth, Single or married, or two hundred thousand uh, what income? If you're individual, three hundred. If you're married, for the last couple of years, with expectations yeah. to do the same in the current year, uh, it was fast. Hopefully, I said that right. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so high net worth, high income folks, right? And a lot of people are are nearing that threshold or have never really considered that before. Hadn't done what I do to you know write down your net worth for the first time, and so you you get this illusion that. It's all for accredited investors out there. And if you're not one, then it's not something that you can do. But that's just not the case. Because I, I would say the majority of deals I see now, today, are 506Bs. They can take on up to 35 sophisticated investors who may be non-accredited if they so choose to do so, the the general partner or the sponsorship firm. So um, so that's a little bit about the regulation. And, and, a, and a problem that I see a lot of people having is just the assumption that, well, I'm not accredited yet, so I'm not even going to look at this stuff or learn it, you know, until I am. And, you know, might be a, a mistake.
0: <laughs> I think another assumption some people might uh, use is that they assume every pro forma is going to end up being that, show that on the back end of profitability when they don't realize that some deals will actually, you know, might not perform as anticipated.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's as unpredictable as, as choosing stocks, I guess, to, to, to draw a parallel or a comparison. I mean, it's anybody's guess what the share of XYZ stock's gonna do in five years. Now, I, I like to hope, <laughs> well, based on my experience so far, I mean, it is more predictable than that when it comes to multifamily real estate. It's a slow-moving, steady game where you have a lot of data to look back on and, and there's not the volatility and the hype and the markets and the manipulation, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but yes, to your point, uh, some deals I've done have exceeded pro forma uh, in a very exceptional way. Others I have lost money in. Not in real estate though, but still it was a private placement deal I lost money in. And some just slightly underperform, Some do exactly what you might hope they would do, but it's all over the place. And you do have to realize it's a projection. So what are you really betting on? The team, <laughs> the sponsorship group's ability to execute the business plan. And even if they have the track record, the experience, and the ability there could be other outstanding factors with interest rates and political risk and floods, tornadoes, hurricanes. I mean, all these these things are out there in the world. And, and so even the best operators can't have a perfect track record, something to think about.
0: So from your mistakes or some of the deals that might not have gone as well as expected, I mean, what are those things that people should t- keep an eye out for?
1: Yeah, back to kind of that 20%. Now, whether your philosophy is different, 10%, 5%, 1%, you know, the experimental category just be aware for the same thing that, that you're probably going to lose money now and again. That was my experience in that 20% category. I went pretty heavy on a deal that came out of an investment group I'm part of. And I did my due diligence for quite a while on the sponsor themselves and and the, the fund. It was a fund structure. And, and what they did is they would buy distressed debt off the uh, banks and then they would try to collect on it. And the, but the problem was, there's a lot of hands involved in this strategy, okay? This wasn't just one operator and one group doing this with like a 20-year track record. This was like, well, hey, we know these folks in this state and these guys help us in this state and then this and this and this. and so you couldn't possibly do all your due diligence accurately. It would take you a lifetime to get through all these people and all these you know books and everything. And long story short, I lost money because one of the, the operators in in this whole thing ended up being a Ponzi scheme. So they had to allocate the total portion that was dedicated that direction to, uh, I mean, it went into receivership and it was just an immediate loss. And, and we've yet to see really anything of it. It's been a few years. So uh, the point is, I guess, the, the takeaway you know, invest mostly in what makes sense to you again, back to your own criteria, your own core philosophy, that, that really didn't match up to to much of, of what I really, uh, look at in the space. And so that was a hard lesson learned, but, uh, thankfully, you know, just one so far.
0: (laughs) So with today's environment and what's going on, you know, in the economy, what are you looking at moving forward for the rest of this year into next year? What type of deals and,
1: yeah, that's another. You know, I spend my weeks just networking on the phone. I do these these free fifteen minute uh, phone calls with folks, just a Q and A, right? Whether it was a blog or a podcast or wherever somebody you know found me or saw me, everybody's got questions or how does that pertain to my situation or what about this situation? Anyway, so through doing that, I, I've another thing I've really learned, especially since COVID, is all the different thoughts and philosophies and points of view on COVID. I mean, you've got investors saying, oh, I'm just, I'm out. I'm sitting on the sidelines till this whole thing's over. I'm not doing anything. You've got people saying, look, I just sold a business. I got to put some money to work. I don't want to sit on the sidelines for a year or two or who knows how long. And then people in between. And, and you see the conservatives and you see the, the risk takers. And so for me, uh I I tend to think I'm I'm fairly conservative, moderately conservative. However, I've still continued to invest since March. Closed a, a deal in March, uh well, as an LP in that deal. And then uh, what, three more since then, maybe two or three more since then. And I will continue to do so. I'm looking for deals this month. So it, it, the point is this that the the market has shifted, things have changed, collections and occupancy have swayed. Well, it's reflective in the purchase price of the properties that you know I'm partnering on, right? Maybe there's a $2 million discount on the property or something like that on a larger multifamily. So that's my philosophy is that there's always a deal to be had, whether we're in a, a bull market, whether we're in a bus, whether we're just stagnant for years, there's always gonna be some deal that that from an underwriting standpoint and being conservative makes sense. And so I'm of that mindset. But I know folks that have been on the sidelines almost six years now. Because <laughs> they're waiting on the big crash, so I don't
0: know. So I guess like back in uh, March, when you know the stock market was crashing, right? Everyone just decided to take a seat, thinking that this thing was going to go down for a couple of years, and now we're back up. You know, uh, back to where it was. It's like crazy. So yeah, you don't know where the market's going. I mean, in theory, if interest rates are not going to move over the next couple of years, uh, as the Fed has kind of given us guidance, right. I mean, demand for real estate should stay strong. I mean, it's going to differ, you know, be different in different areas, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. And uh, I'm glad to see you're still doing deals. I mean, we're doing deals ourselves and in specific areas that we think are still have room to grow over the next few years.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that, that's the other generalization that drives me nuts is like when people just use a term like real estate. Well, real estate's gonna go down. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> you know, single family, multifamily, self-storage mobile home power, which which markets, which sub markets? What if you bought it at a 40% discount? Is that not a good deal? I mean, you know, there's just so many factors. So it's real estate's local. That's the takeaway. No, I
0: agree there. And then, you know, from you know, all the syndications you participated in, has there been any things that stuck out? that uh you know whether it's the software the management used or the strategy anything that's worked better
1: well i don't know i mean it, it's i vow val- one thing i value as an lp is reporting transparency and communication well i shouldn't say that. i guess that's three things but <laughs> but all, all of that in one package uh, so I, I prefer personally, I mean, passive income is my, is my income. So I like monthly frequency to reporting and, and distributions if possible. That's certainly not the industry norm, but I try to do a lot of deals that have that monthly uh, communication and whatnot. I just, again, it's knowing yourself and, and just your personality And I start to get a little little stressed when three or four months go by and I haven't heard anything. And and especially in in the economic environment like we're in, or I'll give you an example, in 2019, I own a lot of properties out in Dallas-Fort Worth and a tornado ripped right through the center of Dallas-Fort Worth. And it was really interesting that like half of the deals I was partnered in, they were like immediate on top. Like, hey, this just happened, everything's okay we're on the phone with the property management it's all you know and the other half are just like we'll let you know when you know no. you know <laughs> and I don't appreciate that. That, that's so, not anyway. good yeah yeah so a little bit on that but but yeah as far as like a, a, a specific you know technology or something i not not really i like having so i guess do- my
0: question is more like do you see uh an improvement in the returns to those operators that are more organized or had things more streamlined or you've seen both sides
1: that's a good point and and actually that's pretty true so the more structured the more detailed the more thorough the more communication usually the better pulse they have on the investment itself versus the the ones that maybe try to skirt away from it for a few months and then hurry up and make a report real fast kind of shows uh, so yeah, it's tough, man. Because you know, when you make an investment like this, you, you, you know enough to get rolling. You know enough to like or dislike these folks. But but then six months, twelve months, twenty four months is kind of a true test. You know, now you've kind of been through the ringer, and so there's, I, I've partnered with over fourteen operators at this point. I'm I'm starting to kind of reel it back in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, that's,
0: <laughs> that's like everything though in life right you, you go a little broad and then you find out what works the best and then you you, you put all your tension there right yeah
1: yeah that's true yeah
0: and what what made you decide to take more of the lp route over the years and versus you know some kind of operator position on certain deals and you know are you going to stick with that I get asked that a lot, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of people probably listening. They're like, you know, I kind of want to do the deal myself or I want to be an LP or I'm not sure. And so why would someone choose one way or the other?
1: So since 2015, which is when I started doing this stuff on the, on the passive side, there wasn't near the education that there is today. There weren't near the conferences, right? And the books and the webinars and seminars and all this kind of stuff. So... To me, what happened was in, in my single family journey, I had a lot of self-reflection that was happening throughout. Right. Each time I would try and do like a vacation rental or a flip, and then I would look at I would look back on the project and I would just realize I'm not that good. <laughs> you know, there's there's people all around me doing this better, more efficiently, bigger profit margins, bigger teams, better connections it's a lot of work, number one, a lot of time, a lot of work. And that's what I think a lot of folks don't realize when they think they go to like a a weekend boot camp, and then they come out on Monday and go, I'm going to go raise 10 million bucks and do a deal. You don't realize how much work it is, and that it takes so much of this, uh, you know, the connections and the education. So for me, my thought process was, hey, why don't I just piggyback off the success of those doing it best? Why don't I find people who are passionate about what they do, who have a track record experience, things to show for it? Why don't I just partner with them? They obviously can do it better than I can do it. And yeah, they're gonna take fees and blah, blah, blah. But like at the end of the day, my returns haven't changed that much from what I was getting on the single family stuff. But my time has drastically changed from having zero time to having a lot of time. And that's the biggest benefit to me. That's kind of my message uh, for anyone, you know, that finds me on uh, whatever Facebook or or Instagram, I put out a lot on on like this concept of time freedom, you are freeing up your time. And so it's not black or white. It's not right or wrong. I mean, yes, there's a lot of money potentially to be had on the general partner side, absolutely. freaking lootly. But it's also, as you know, a lot of, a lot of time commitment, a lot of stress and a lot of all of that. And, and I just don't want that. <laughs> so <to answer laughs> no, your question, I, I continued to do the LP stuff. I hope to continue to do the LP stuff. I do not want to be a GP myself. That's good. And as you can see all the, uh,
0: Older, wiser people would say, you can't get, you don't get any more time back, right? So people don't realize that. So I think that's really important. Uh, So what are you, what are you doing with your time, baby? (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs)
1: doing? Um, Yeah, so, so here's what happened. So uh, back to just to reverse real quick, back to where I left the oil industry, right? And kind of the, I, I had my FI number, my financial independence number. So the first thing, I didn't know what to do, to be honest, but I knew that I had cash flow now to pay for my livestock expenses. So I thought, okay, well, I don't wanna retire, obviously, I'm, I'm young. So I went to go work for a brokerage firm. I wanted to learn stocks, bonds, mutual funds, I got licensed, I just, I wanted to learn that stuff. But unfortunately, the way that that model's designed is there's not a lot of like personal investing knowledge that, that comes of it. It's mainly just teaching you about a firm's products and then go sell those to everybody. So. I fell out of love with that misalignment of interest. Then I I started working for a small local syndication group. Um, I started kind of building out uh, part of their investor relations team, but mainly just to learn underwriting and acquisitions and like I wanted to be inside this business that I was investing in so I could learn a lot more about it. That led to working with Ashcroft Capital and Joe Fairless just, you know, I met Joe. The criteria clicked. The deals clicked. Everything we've talked about so far clicked. Monthly, everything, transparency, great reporting, and so that's so. So last year, 2019, I joined forces with with Ashcroft. Um, it's kind of a funny story, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. So I do that specifically for one reason. I have the time now to give back to others. I love to network. Okay, and so this was an outlet to stand behind a name a brand and to get exposure out there into the industry and to be able to attend conferences, and to be able to reach people. And so that's what I do is is I network kind of in an investor relations capacity, but I just try to add value where I can And, and the majority of my phone calls that I have with folks are not uh, the right fit let's say for Ashcroft Capital you know whether they're not accredited or they're they're doing other things or whatever but i just like to to network and learn from others i like to find new deals that way i like to share books and knowledge and resources and and stuff like that so i give my time back i guess is the short of it right uh, that's what i'm doing right now ask me in 5 years i don't know but <laughs> i love what i do right now and it's beneficial to me so
0: now, now, you guys, based on what you're saying, you just invest capital for yourself. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: And do you ever see yourself doing some kind of like fund of funds type of vehicle?
1: Uh, you, you're talking about me or, or Aspen?
0: Like you, like for yourself, like seeing taking some money to invest in multiple funds?
1: Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I like, I like the individual deals. I've, I've certainly invested in a handful of funds and they have their pros and cons. But what I really like are the individual. Opportunities. This is one property in one place, one location. I can fly out there. I can go walk the units if I want. I, I can just I like that. I like to do my due diligence that way because I understand that best. Um, but that's just me. So doesn't make it right.
0: <laughs> now, one of the questions everyone always asks in today's world is, you know, what's a tax liability, right? On different investments. And so yeah. do you have any strategies that you use when you're looking at deals or anything that you're looking for specifically?
1: Two of the things that changed the most in terms of taxes for me Uh, one i read tom wheelwright's book tax-free wealth that was years ago he's come out with a newer edition with the tax code change Uh, that started my journey into understanding taxes in general when it comes to business and real estate and depreciation and all of that Um, so whether you pick up a book like that or, or however you find the content i guess my point is find a fun way to kind of educate yourself and open that door Because once you do, what that led to is switching CPAs now almost three times because I'm looking for a CPA that's an investor themselves, that knows a lot about real estate, that does all the same things I do to an extent. And so they're helping themselves, they're helping me, we're having the conversations in a very educated way. And I, I guess I just didn't realize that... You know I guess I just thought a CPA was a CPA, you know, like but but it's just man, it's just not created equal. So I pay a lot more these days to have my taxes done by a true professional, but they have pointed out so many things that I was not doing, so many things I could be doing should I choose to. and so the the combination between self education and, and kind of having a mentor, let's call it that, a mentor, or a coach, that's how I look at my CPA. And uh, those have been the biggest things. Now, when it comes to uh, being a passive investor in a limited partnership or an LLC, so you get a K-1 tax form once per year and and everything's done for you. So the decision you have to make there is asking the questions up front to the sponsor. Do you do things like cost segregation studies, right? Are you you taking advantage of bonus depreciation and all these things, right? You have to ask those questions up front because if they don't, you're missing out on a huge amount of tax savings potentially. Um, and so th- those are all of my partnerships in the real estate world. They all do cost segregation studies, which, you know, just, I guess, from a high level, obviously not a licensed CPA, please seek, you know, professional advice from, from a tax professional. But uh, <laughs> that being said, cost seg is, is kind of like a lot of folks in the single family space myself included you'll take a buy and hold piece of real estate right it's the cost of of the actual building minus the land and you're depreciating that on the straight line schedule so like 27.5 years let's call it depends on the type of real estate but uh but it's just pro rata each year right but when you do these larger assets you have so many things that have a shorter lifespan in them like a ceiling fan or refrigerators appliances cabinetry carpet whatever things that aren't actually the the structure of the the building or the land well they have a shorter lifespan maybe three years maybe five years maybe seven years and so you can capture that depreciation in a much tighter condensed schedule uh, so that when you get your your k-1 tax form you have tremendous passive losses potentially and in year one year two year three stuff like that Um, and again, not giving any legal advice, but 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 check that stuff out. Cost segregation studies are a must uh, if you're gonna be a passive investor in larger assets. It may not make sense to pay to have one done if all you have is a single family home. You know, I mean, <laughs> if you're cash flowing a couple hundred bucks a month on one property and the study's five grand, well, that knocks out your whole annual earnings, right? So that doesn't make any sense. So, But it is nice on the larger assets to pay for these studies and, and have everybody benefit um, from them, so. Kind of a long-winded answer, but
0: <laughs> there you go. No, that was great. And I guess, you know, have you seen a, a pretty big difference then in the amount you saved over the last five years?
1: I have. I have. Yeah. Kind of leveraging those three things, right? Partnering with with teams that are also interested in tax savings, finding a good CPA that kind of does what you do. By the way, not just on real estate topic, but I used to, when I worked in the oil field and I did overseas work, right? I was using the wrong CPA. Because, you know, there's a lot of exemptions around earning your income solely in a foreign, you know, country. Well, my CPA was just, you know, straight lining it like anybody else, you know. And man, I overpaid like tens of thousands of dollars in taxes. It was crazy. And I had to go back and amend. It was a mess. But the point is, you know, whatever you're doing, whether you're overseas oil field, whether you're real estate. and, And real estate's vague, as we talked about. What kind of real estate? These passive deals or active deals, vacation rentals, different stuff. Just find the most competent CPA that you can. And everyone will tell you they're the right fit, but you know, really find out who's the right fit. Uh, do your due diligence. Um, it'll be worth the investment, in my opinion.
0: That basically means they aren't the cheapest.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's true.
0: <laughs> right? That's,
1: yeah, yeah, it does, <laughs> in my experience.
0: <laughs> so what other, you know, what other goals or investing goals have you kind of set for yourself over the next five years?
1: Yeah, continue the LP stuff. I've got a few mentors and folks in my network that have done a little over a hundred LP deals, give or take. I, I mean, I really want to be on that path. I'm, I am on that path, but I want to get there on the path. So, really, to me, that's the goal. It's not a specific number or anything. I don't have a very. I, I've gotten where I want to be in terms of you know paying for overhead, but I like the process. I really do. I just like real estate. And I just like you know networking. I just like partnering and, and doing this partnership stuff and, and having the choice to be hands on or hands off with it. So um, hopefully after COVID's over, my wife and I are international travelers. So we love just doing trips just spontaneously wherever. She works for an airline too, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so hopefully more, more travel and um, you know, looking to start a family and uh, more LP deals.
0: So from, you know, the network or the mentors you've had, I mean, what has worked the best for you? Why, you know, why has it been the best deal?
1: Uh, Out of my mentors? Yeah, out
0: of your mentors and or, you know, the networks that you're involved in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what are the great benefits that have come out of it? Well,
1: so I found one particular investment group that stood out more than the rest that was local. A lot of the local ones I haven't found a lot of success with. This particular one is about 400 accredited investors that meet once per month. And we just talk deals and investments and usually there's a presenter. It's a pre-vetted. Uh, individual that somebody in the group's been investing with for 10, 15, 20 years, things like that. I, I found a lot of deal flow out of out of a group like that over time. So that's been a huge benefit is like we talked about when I first got started, I didn't have deal flow, I didn't know who to talk to or where these deals were. So that's a that was a great eye opener. As far as the mentors themselves, like individuals that are, you know, 100 plus deals just having the casual conversations have helped tremendously because the the beautiful thing about a mentor, a coach, or or a Q and A call like I try to offer to folks is that you can nail down to your specifics, right? And, And like your specific individual questions that often aren't answered through a book. It may not be answered through, you know, a podcast or a movie or whatever it is. So it's nice to have that human, like what, you know, let me pick your brain on this topic. (laughs) If you were in my shoes here, what would you do? That kind of stuff goes a long way. So that's been the biggest uh, benefit for me.
0: That's great. And so our final question is, what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners that you can provide from your experience in investing your capital, growing your wealth and minimizing your tax bill?
1: It has been from self education and twenty fifteen was my extreme year where I read fifty two books and did all this crazy stuff and that was probably overkill. but the fact is to hone in self reflect a little bit there's some great books too on kind of finding yourself and who you are and goal setting and all that kind of stuff but but additionally, just in the space that you have an interest in real estate you know as a whole so through that and, and books, like I mentioned, uh, tax-free wealth and all that kind of stuff. I mean, just just it's, it's a numbers game is the, is the problem. So most people only read one or two books a year max, right? But if you read 10 or 20, it's a numbers game. Every second or third or fourth book is gonna have some great content usually or a great takeaway that, that can be life-changing. So the fact is you just have to embrace self-education in my opinion, that's been the biggest thing that's helped.
0: No, I agree. I've been pretty much self-educating for life, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah. I felt like my education started after college, to be honest with you. Felt like I was just like boxed in on this conveyor belt thing and then all of a sudden poof, the doors open. And that was that was where my education started. So kind of funny.
0: That's great. And if people want to get to, you know, get a hold of you or reach out to you, what is the best way for someone to to do that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I mentioned the 15-minute the Q&A call. I also have a downloadable PDF about what we're talking about. It's called uh, Understanding Real Estate Private Placements. It's just a 20-pager with terminology, questions to ask a sponsor, how to bet, operators, teams, and markets. So you can, you can do either of those, the call or, or, or both, at uh, ashcroftcapital.com forward slash connect with Travis. And additionally, I'm on all the platforms out there, Instagram and Facebook are uh, at Passive Investor Tips. And then I'm on, you know, Bigger Pockets and, and LinkedIn and you name it, I'm probably there. So uh, definitely connect, love to help in any way that I can, anybody who's listening. And um, I, don't, I don't sell anything. <laughs> so that's the good news. That's the rarity of it. So reach out.
0: Thanks, Travis. Thank you for coming on today. All right, you bet, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Joe Robert Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates.
1: Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Robert
0: Show. The Joe Robert Show your rubber show